Podcast, a podcast where the movies of John Travolta face off with the movies of Nicolas Cage until we watch the movie Face Off. I'm Jess McBride. And I'm Erin Hennessy, and we will be your guides along this journey through the forgeries of Travolta and the swindlings of Cage. This is our fifth episode, and it's all about... Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still kind of true. It's true, actually. <laughs> Most of these are about stealing things. Um, this, is, this is our fifth episode, and it's all about families who learn to love each other and steal things from other people. Yeah, I think that checks out. Uh, we we have a kind of a thing we follow, like kind of a script-y thing, and I copied one. And it happened to also be about people who steal things from America, episode three. Anyway, <laughs> here's the thing. This episode is a little bit different than our typical episode. Usually we Skype. Well, we don't really Skype. That's like That's a the, verb for talking yeah, over distance. phones or computers. <laughs> but we are both in Los Angeles right now, so we are recording. And Jess's cat just knocked over my coffee because she hates me. And... Uh, <laughs> The cat life is good. Hates to be touched in the eye. I think is more that's accurate. accurate. <laughs> I did not touch her in the eye. She had an eye goober and knocked over my coffee. Anyway, yeah, we have quite a matchup this week. Do Let's we? start with Matchstick Men. This movie. Oh, we're we're matching up Matchstick Men. Yes, to the Forger. The Forger. Have you heard of these movies? Maybe not. Who knows. Matchstick Men was released in 2003. It was directed by Ridley Scott, and uh, Nicolas Cage stars in this movie with Alison Lohman and Sam Rockwell. The budget was $62 million. Oh, I don't know what they spent that on, but they no did. No idea. Uh, and they received $65 million in the box office. Uh-oh. All right. <laughs> Come on in, John. Yeah. We have some friends you're here. in Los Angeles. Yeah, we've interrupted it. That visit. What's hey, up, neighbor, buddy? I brought back your pressure cooker. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's clean. Cool. <laughs> I have a this responsible is, neighbor. <laughs> this is community at you're its not, finest. You're not actually started. Yeah, we're recording now. As we speak? Yeah, yeah you want to be a guest? Yeah, I mean, I am now. <laughs> now we um, would like to welcome our friend John! Yeah! What do I do with that curbside compost? It's full now? Oh, Hashtag yeah. Los Angeles problems. Second. I'll take it back In to them. one second. This movie was budgeted for $62 million and brought back $65 million in the box office. So a, a tiny return... The basic rundown of this, the IMDb review for this movie says, A phobic con artist and his protege are on the verge of pulling off a lucrative swindle when the former teenage daughter arrives unexpectedly. The former teenage daughter? The former's. Oh, that's a terrible review. That is a really okay, bad well, review. Anyway, basically, in a nutshell, Nicolas Cage is, I would say, like a small to middling swindler. Right? Like, this is not, like, Ocean's Eleven heist level. No. He, yeah. He definitely does... I feel like his day-to-day, what they set up is, like, 
pretty average, simple heist. Like Correct. water, like, weren't they like water purifiers? I don't know. Those were like, it's yeah. like, oh, we're, we're selling you something. Give us your credit card number or your bank account number. You know, it's like, it's like little stuff like that, that they can't really get caught for very easily. And he and Sam Rockwell's character are kind of partners together. And they, yeah, they sort of pull off these little, I don't even know if heist is a good word for it. It's just little, little, little swindles. Little, um, yeah. Flim flams. Is that what, no? I mean. Flim flam man does flim flams, right? Yeah. Maybe not. And he describes himself, you know, when he's describing what they do to the, to the teenage daughter, you know, he, he describes himself as a matchstick man, which I'm curious where that comes from. Maybe I'll look that up while we talk about it. But yeah, I mean, he sort of knows what he's doing. But he's kind of like, this is my option. Like, this is mm-hmm. this is my career. <laughs> well, and he does, in a weird way, he does treat it as like a nine to five, right? He, they still go to an office. Yeah. And they, he kind of engages in this thing in a habitual way that you are, I mean, my initial thing was like, why don't you just get a nine to five? Because that's essentially what you're doing. You're putting in the work mm-hmm. constantly. And you're yeah. obviously, he, he was making really good money. Irene, my supervisor, just stepped into my office and he would love to talk to you. Can you hold just a sec? Thanks, Irene. Good morning. Who says so? Irene Fisk, she wants to talk to her husband first. Mrs. Fisk, John Goodhue, regional vice president. Congratulations. You know, the talent. I mean, obviously this takes some brains to figure out what the best, you know, way is to do this. They had performance talent like they had to pretend to be different people different mm-hmm. salespeople. like they weren't untalented they weren't just like mugging people yeah um which I guess maybe requires some skills too yeah but you know I yeah it's interesting and I wonder if there is something sort of psychological about like winning you know winning the game of swindling of mm-hmm. you know getting one over on someone and you know, not having to be in this formalized economy. And yeah, I wonder if there's like just kind of a pleasure in that too. Um, Um, Quick question. Yeah. Did you have any, was this ever on your radar? Had you ever seen this movie or was it advertised to you? I think it was advertised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so 2003 is when I graduated from high school. I wasn't seeing a lot of movies in the theater necessarily, um, but I was interested in film. <clears throat> Capital F. <laughs> Just getting clears throat. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I was starting to get into um, different film and stuff. I don't know that this was something that, like, appealed to me, but I definitely recognized the title. So Nicolas Cage and his partner, Roy and Frank, are kind of putting over these swindles, and his, it's his therapist, right? Mm-hmm kind of reveals to him, you have a daughter and, you know, from your ex and she wants to get in touch with you. And so they, he sort of, the therapist sort of facilitates this meeting um, and he kind of unexpectedly gets into a, a, a new father-daughter relationship with this girl who looks like she's 15 or 14 or, you know, just like a young teenager. The actress was 23. 23. Yes. Um, but like, you know, definitely carries herself off like a really young teenager, like very kind of tomboyish. 
and great kind of style. Win, yeah, great style. Mm-hmm. Kind of wins him over and even shows an interest in his swindling career. <laughs> and, you know, wants to be, you know, kind of like he teaches her how to do a basic swindle uh, in which she pulls it off magically, especially because, as we'll learn later, she is a swindler by <gasps> trade. You know, and so we see Nicolas Cage, who has um, he has some phobias <clears throat> of being outside, of, you know, doors being open, and which, you know, the the director kind of puts us in his point of view by uh, kind of doing interesting things with the camera, like making things really fuzzy and kind of trying to give us an example of what it might be like to have, to be in a normal environment and then to all of a sudden your environment to be really threatening, even though it's, you know, kind of the same normal environment. So he's sort of learning to bring in this new person into his environment, you know, in the form of his daughter, his estranged daughter, um, you know, is teaching her and is kind of forming this father daughter bond and he's kind of opening up like, and then I don't know, what would you say three quarters, four fifths of the way? Four fifths. Yeah. Go four fifths. We find out that, you know, at the, this sort of zenith of the, this bigger heist that they're trying to pull off against this rich guy, we find out that she was in on swindling Nicholas Cage and that she had been in it all along like she probably wasn't his daughter in any way you know and she in fact wasn't on because then he, he goes and visits his he does we actually confirm that we, mm-hmm. we they actually did not even leave that they tied that loose yeah. end yeah so yeah they they kind of just revealed to us that he in fact even though he's like letting the stranger in mm-hmm. he was swindled himself but does not come away from that being like, well, never again. I'll never open myself up again. He actually does, uh, a, a year later we see that he has gotten a, a regular job mm-hmm. at a carpet sales place. Yeah. And uh, has has uh, connected with a partner and has conceived a child. Yeah. And that's how it ends. So we know that kind of he, all is well that ends well. He kind of just chooses this very conventional life and... I don't know, because he, at one point it's kind of confirmed that, well, no, but, okay, sorry. Everything's playing tricks on me now. Mm. So his therapist, (laughs) his therapist, it turns out, isn't really a therapist. He's part of the con, right? I don't know. He is. Oh, yeah. Because when he goes to the place, it's, the office is gone. Everything's gone. Everybody was a part of the con. Okay. But the therapist does give him really practical advice at one point in the movie. That's what I mean. And tells him, like, you don't actually have a problem. Like, you don't, you don't have the phobias that you think you do. Like, I gave you these menopause pills because, or they weren't even, they were like soy pills or whatever because you didn't actually need anything. And then he, he's actually able to grow and change and kind of, but, but what I was getting at was I wonder if he had these anxieties or had this projection of this these phobias and different things because of the work he was doing too like if the work is what was like creating that in him Uh. and when he was able to push past the work or like no longer do that line of work and take these risks he was able to just like function as a normal human but here's the thing is that like phobia even if it's created by something is still real i don't know that i would classify that as sage advice as being like it's all in your head, and I'm not giving you treatment secretly. 
because this is, you don't need anything. Like, the sage advice would be like, what do you do for work? Oh, you deceive people every day? Mm-hmm. Let's get into a real, you know, a more honest and, you know, transparent way of living. And, mm. and maybe, you know, like, this is probably a deep part of what you're experiencing. And I don't know. I mean, maybe p- giving him, like, placebos is a thing that you could do, but I feel like that's just keeping him in the thing. I don't know that, um, just saying like, you don't have phobias is correct. Cause he's like experiencing and we're seeing that through the, the camera too, is like, he's experiencing these like traumatic, he's having traumatic experiences, mm-hmm. whether or not, whether or not that's like actually chemically within him because of his body or because of his, the psychology, the psychological place he's put himself with his work. I think the other interesting thing about this movie, too, is we see this picture of a, a man who is not fully competent mm-hmm. in his work, right? Like, like National Treasure showed us a, a man, he portrayed a man that's, like, fully in control, like, very intelligent, and, and is way, able to sort of solve his way out of problems. Very praised by everyone, also. <laughs> the character, yeah. Yes. Whereas here we see... A man who is successful at his job of swindling, he is competent at that, but he has these psychological phobias. He doesn't have great relationships with women. You know, he's afraid to, you know, talk to this woman he's attracted to in the store. He has to kind of get his footing when interacting with his female daughter. And he's definitely more of a vulnerable male mm-hmm. in this role. Yeah, I would Which agree I thought was that. really interesting. Yeah, it's a fun contrast. I would argue that Nicolas Cage still brings a, a very similar quality to all of his characters. And but but he does in this in this case like what you're saying, he does spin it different ways. Like this this character obviously is very kind of helpless. Um in a lot of ways are like out of control and we do see we do see other characters i'd say the majority of characters that cage plays are a little more in control than this one right mm-hmm. so this is kind of an extreme uh a more extreme character for him to play but yeah i think he i think overall it was it was fun to watch visually it was a it was a good film like i think that they tied up their loose ends pretty well I saw this movie in 2003 because <laughs> I was kind of in a similar spot and I think wanting to like engage with more highbrow, highbrow cinema, <laughs> I just used air the quotes, cinema. <laughs> cinema, and I was working at Hollywood Video at the time. Stop it. And I don't I think was, I And I had to wear the purple shirt and everything. And yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things about that job was shelving movies and I specifically very clearly remember this movie, shelving this movie. And I remember, mm. yeah, that's just like the cover and everything. And um, I remember renting it for free because we got free rentals. Or we got a discount or something. It was oh, pretty, I hope it was decent. free. I'm pretty oh sure it was gosh. free. I think it was like one free at a time or I don't know. But I remember watching this and it just going way over my head and just being like, I don't really know <laughs> what just happened. I don't think, I think I walked away with that movie thinking that the daughter's character... Uh, or Alison Lohman was the only person that had swindled him. <laughs> like in my memory, <laughs> Sam Rockwell had nothing to do with the swindling. She was the full swindler, which I, I think is so that. funny. I, I love like, that you interpreted that. Why did I think that? I don't know. <laughs> she I don't she know had yet. a real gun. 
Because it's very clear. <laughs> when you watch the movie yeah. sequentially, it's like, no, these are people Well, I have to say, I did look away during the... Sh- I, you know, for whatever reason, like, picked up my phone or something during the very moment of him getting hit by the guy that was in on it. And oh. so if you didn't see that mm-hmm. and, you know, and so I saw him putting the, putting her in the car with Sam Rockwell mm-hmm. and then waking up in the hospital. And, yeah. and so I was like, wait a second, I definitely missed something here because I, I think that he just got swindled and I did mm-hmm. not. So he must've gotten knocked out by like the plan and all this stuff. So I had to kind of backtrack and be like, oh, okay. This is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we don't see that guy again. We don't. I'm also, I'm trying to remember what, what role the hospital played in the. He wakes up in the hospital. Correct. The quote but why unquote. did we have to do that? He had to be knocked out. Sure. I think because he had to not see that the guy that they stole money from was still alive. Because I think we're assuming that he died. So I don't understand, like, why didn't they just knock him out and kill him? Or or knock him out and, like, leave him in the desert or something? Like, what... I don't understand the purpose of, maybe, like, the Maybe there's, like, an fake... unspoken con man rule where you try not to kill people. When you don't kill people, you have to you at just least leave them in their misery. Carry on the narrative. Hire the it's detect... True. Like, that was a big risk of, like, hiring these fake detectives. I don't know. Anyway. It did seem like there were too many people involved in this con. But maybe there had to be. Maybe Sam Rockwell's character felt that there had to be... Because Nicolas Cage's character was so, was so competent. competent. As a, oh my gosh. But he didn't ask any questions about the daughter. Like, as I was watching it, yeah, knowing he, that she's part of the con, yeah, he just fully I was accepted like, she just, her. he doesn't even check up on his ex wife or anything. He just goes off of what this girl is telling him. Um, yeah. I just think there were too, too many people in, and they were the two detectives. And so the I think, I, I just think, don't understand. That part of it. That's like a, yeah. a really complex logistical part. Also bringing in these two people into a crime. Um, why did they put it on a roof too? Yeah. It, like, could, why why not a basement? Why not a houseboat? I don't know. I so don't know. Well, that would move. So that would be distracting. Well, I think it would be a benefit. You Maybe it would make you feel like... Being a great con artist starts with your DNA. Your genetic heritage makes you want to con people and forge paintings instead of making a dime the honest way. Scott Free and Me is a genetic service where you can receive personalized reports about your tendencies towards thievery and the likelihood that your children will take up the family business when you're gone. See how your chromosomes help tell the story of you, even when you're constantly changing your story. Order your kit today at scottfreeandme.com. We ship all over the world, including prisons. Scott Free and Me. Tell me okay. about the forger. Oh gosh, where do I even <laughs> begin? Well, the forger came out in 2014. It was directed by Philip Martin. One of the main co-stars in the movie is Christopher Plummer. Great, in my opinion, no matter what he does. And Ty something. Ty Sheridan. Ty so Sheridan. For all the Gen Z people. The Gen Z people who know yeah. who that is. He's, <laughs> he was in uh, Ready Player One. He's been in... He's had quite an illustrious career Tree of for Life. a young person. I think Tree of Life was yeah. his first one, which his we discovered. Movie. Yeah. 
The movie, the budget for the movie was $11 million, and it made $16 million in the box office. So again, I mean, it's it's beating Matchstick Men by $1 million in terms well, of, like, return. Yeah, and But yeah. proportionately, Matchstick Men, they spent more, they made more. Um, I feel like 10 of that million must have just been paying John Travolta's. <laughs> I don't know what else they spent. Because what else do they, honestly, what else do they spend? This movie, for me, well, I hadn't, this was not on my radar at all. No. This was not a movie. No one knew about this movie. I think we decided to just match this movie because, I don't know, just because it is. A very logical family dynamics. (laughs) Yeah. Crime. No, I'm tracking with you. I would say that this movie, uh, the the overarching theme or the attempt at a theme uh, is you know, family matters. <laughs> great Family's TV important. Show. It, it would be a great premise for a TV show, yeah. So a thief works with his father and son to forge a painting by Monet and steal the original. Together, they plan the heist of their lives. This movie, uh, I guess, seeks to do the thing that is described <laughs> on IMDb. <laughs> Uh, we start out the movie with him getting out of prison. By him, I mean uh, Raymond slash John Travolta. And he's very insistent with his lawyer that they get him out in 10 months, right? Which is probably because we learned because that his son. his son has brain cancer mm-hmm. and has a not a, a, a for sure timeline for his life. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the plot centers around this family dynamic. So, his son has been living with his father, who is very Irish Boston kind of kind of a guy. He's got kind of a little like Irish lilt almost. Played by Christopher uh, Plummer. Christopher Plummer, who is who a really saint leans of all into saints. that role. Yeah. He leans so hard into the role. <laughs> so we see Travolta kind of get out of prison, interact with his dad and son, and He's supportive of his son. He takes him to the hospital. Um, his son starts asking him, once, especially with the cancer diagnosis and everything, I guess, I don't think that was new news, right? No, it's not new, but I think maybe it had been worsened. In pri- right. It had, While he'd been in prison. Or just that he was now a part of his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, you know, gone himself to see and it, and the diagnosis wasn't good. But, I mean, the whole point is that he... His whole point of getting out of prison was to see his son. He gets to the house. He immediately, like, he's like, thanks, Dad, for, like, letting me in the door. And then, run, like, goes upstairs immediately to go see his son. He's he's really wanting to be present He because of his love for his son. He, and that's why he also put himself in this compromising position of asking this gang leader to get him out of prison. Mm-hmm. And because of that... He's like, I just want to walk away. I don't really want to get involved with you, gang leader. But the gang leader's like, nope, false. You have to do this crime this for me. This thing for me. Which is basically forging a painting so they can steal the real painting and replace it with the fake painting and then sell the painting. So, yeah, we go through this movie and we see uh, this dad go to great lengths, I guess, to make his son happy um, or as comfortable as possible. Uh, his son talks to him about wanting to lose his virginity, so he like takes him, he takes him to hang out with a prostitute. But then the police swoop in. There are also that is a, kind of another side story is we have this police officer that he meets in a club, and it turns out she's actually trying to catch this 
this guy that's forcing him to make this painting. Um, so she's like kind of hot on this guy's trail and then she gets kind of sidetracked by Travolta's character because she's like watching him and trying to figure out why he's doing what he's doing. So like, why would he, you know, like, why would he create, you know, commit this crime or like he's, you know, he just got out of prison and he's going into a prostitute. Why is he, he doing that? Yeah. And he beats um, up a bunch of people because he wants to find out where his ex lives so mm-hmm. that his son could meet his mom for like the first time. It's because of his, the love for his son. I mean, what? All of a sudden he wants to see me? This isn't you trying to hook me back into you and his your dad. His son is sick. He's got cancer. He's got a stage four tumor in his head. Okay? So I need you to clean yourself up, put your best face on, and have lunch with us on Wednesday. I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. No, I can't. Well, wait a minute. I just told you that your son was dying, and you can't do this? Who are you? Yeah, and I mean, overall, everything kind of works out the way that they want it to. (laughs) Right? It's pretty perfectly. It it really ends about as perfectly. The the bad guy dies (laughs) under under an Olympic weightlifting set. He's presumably strangled by the person he tries to sell this piece of art to. But that that was the art piece, right? No. No, but they pull a switch. I think that oh you're right. So it they, was the actual so the art real one piece. Is in is safely in. Well, I feel like it would be safely safe. in the museum. <laughs> safe? No. no, no. It's safely <laughs> Christopher Plummer's possession. Yes, as it should Christopher be. Christopher Plummer like poses as the art analyzer. analyst. Analyst basically says this is fake. This is fake, and so out of anger, the buyer goes to kill the to kill gang the bad guy and. And then so yeah, everyone's sort but of gets he he they still yeah he gets a payout. The guy still gives him money. Yeah, his fee his hundred and thousand dollar fee. And then they go to a tropical place and yeah, his goal we learn Travolta's goal is to is to move to Tahiti and live like this painter that he knows about, and which sounds like a really strange goal to me, but. That is kind of how they end up. They they all hop on a plane without much luggage, and they go hang out in, in this place, Tahiti. And his son's like happy and it, content. Maybe just thought he was going to die in the hammock. He in a didn't hammock. move for a good. He did not move very much. <laughs> Thirty seconds. Um, it was a little scary. <laughs> we were. It was a false alarm. We were a little worried, but uh, no. And is there is this moment at the end of the movie where. We see Travolta, like, continually wanting to provide for his son or, like, yeah, we're going to do this and that and it'll be great. And I think having still having the realization that his his son is probably going to die or will die and he can't do anything about it. Um, something I did like about... There was a lot I did not like about this movie. I just didn't. Um, it was really... It was really choppy. It was really... Um, the, you know, Travolta goes in and out of a Boston accent throughout the entire <laughs> movie. Uh, the only person who's pretty consistent with this accent is Chris Plummer. And maybe uh, the girl who plays the police officer. She was pretty... Well, well she no, only does she it only at the beginning, it, though. Yeah. And then she just has a normal accent. There was a real so, mix there. There was a lot of choppiness to this movie. There was not... We we were noticing there's, like, not a lot of actual painting. Like, yeah, he that, has to... Or forgery. He has to <laughs> replicate a Monet, which yeah. is insane. That's an insane puzzle to it pull is. off. And 
And so we thought we were going to be like, oh, exposed to all his painting background. Why was he a painter? This requires a lot of skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but turns out we had like one or two painting scenes. Um, yep. which, if that. There's like a painting that. mixing scene and a painting painting scene. <laughs> like he, And that's, a, that's something that I think the, the movie was trying to to paint uh Travolta as this it almost it was kind of like a goodwill hunting vibe in that he's this like true Boston guy who you know was Very raised man, on the streets like, and yeah. beats people up with a bat and is obsessed with the Celtics and all these things but then he's really brilliant like there are moments in the movie where he'll just start rambling about painting and about painters and like show this brilliance or or you know this genius but the rest of it you're just kind of like I don't know what you are they didn't really set up his background of like how he came to have these skills or like that he had this hidden passion that he left behind or whatnot so I I feel like they kind of left the gap open for that yeah I'll say I mean was it a great movie? No. But here's what I'll say, and I think we found this in our... We looked through the reviews of this movie from the public, and I think this is supported by this, is that this movie really explores, like, male relationships and emotions and how that's hard. And especially for... Um, I think there's, like, a stereotype, too, that, like, you know, kind of tough Boston Irish Catholics are, like, especially, like, hard to show vulnerability and emotion... And we see movement on all fronts of, like, the Travolta and his son being able to finally communicate and relate through crime, criminal activity, you know, and and being able to open up, right? Like, the movie begins with them really struggling to talk, and then by the end, like, they're able to really comfortably have conversations and, and hug and cry together. The The grandfather, you know kind of blatantly says, I never told your grandmother that I loved her. She just knew because, you know, words don't mean shit. It It's all about what you do for someone mm-hmm. in this life. And, but then he goes to the graveyard later and says out loud to the gravestone, you know, like, like I love you. Yeah. yeah. And I think like seeing movement on that, like that, I think is the basket in which the writer put all the eggs <laughs> is like, they did, you know, and for us, who I think, I think females tend to have slightly more emotional intelligence. That is a stereotype that is not true across the board. It's just a stereotype. I think for females, like it's like, oh yeah, this is this is real boring. Like this is <laughs> this is not like real interesting emotional content. But I think for males who don't have that expressed a lot in movies because it is really subtle, right? It's like going from like not talking at all to, like, talking some. You know what I mean? Like, there's not a ton of movement on that. But, like, I think that's kind of a minority view that is almost never expressed and could be really relatable. And this is firmly marketed towards men. Like, there's no quadrant of, like, there's, like of the quadrant theory. No, like, those two halves of females, like, not, not part of this audience. Yeah. Right? And I think, too, like having Travolta, which again, like this is his classic role in movies is like, he's this man's man that, you know, has these competencies in certain areas that, you know, even though he's not highbrow and elite, 
he still is super competent and powerful in, in other ways. And I think that's the male archetype that he portrays in these movies. And I think mm-hmm. does this here too, is that like, even though he's this like, you know, it doesn't seem like he's highly educated. He doesn't have a lot of money or power uh, socially, but he has, he, he does like come through for his son. He gets the job done and he has this special skill that like he implements. Um, so in terms of objectifyingly speaking, do we even want to do this for this one? <laughs> oh, we definitely need to do this. Oh yeah. There's uh, some high there's, crimes. There's a lot. <laughs> there are a lot of high crimes in terms of wardrobe. I, I, it was really a struggle to move past Travolta's overall appearance in this movie. <laughs> uh, mostly he had this very strange piece of, I, it is not, somebody said it was a goatee in a review. I would not classify it as a goatee. I would not classify it as a soul patch. It is this bizarre little mole-like thing on the bottom, the tip of his chin. This is like a one-inch square, maybe a cubic (laughs) inch of hair that just rests as if, as if a, a vat of hair was poured on him and was dripping off. And this was the, this little drop of hair Clung just on by surface tension. Would not let go. Right to the Never end of his chin. Jack. I think it is a goatee, but a small one. Because I think it's not like soul patch is clearly in the like goatee below the is lip. Full chin. Oh, okay. So maybe we need to come up with a new name for this. I think there must be a name. We'll we'll figure out what the name this is. But it was a cape disgusting. of good hope. <laughs> <laughs> gosh. Um, but it was disgusting. It was gross. And it was distracting. <laughs> it was so distracting. And sometimes it would disappear because he'd be in a dark space. <laughs> it would just like go away. And then it would come back later and we'd be like, oh, it was there it is. revealed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. His hair, his wig wasn't great either. I thought was, his wig was fine. Mm, okay. I mean, what, what more do you want from a wig? Maybe not a wig. <laughs> Maybe just like don't wear a wig. I don't know. You think that's, do you think he's bald? I kind of do. Maybe he, because he I mean, really from always Paris looks like he's wearing a wig these days. He had a shaved head, a bicked head. It's true. Um, and that's and that was not a choice that you do because right? you have a full head of hair. Yeah. And Travolta, as we know, is kind of known for his hair. Yeah. As a younger person. So I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending the wig as like, this is a, per- I, I don't yeah. know anything about wigs, but I don't think it offended me. I was just too. I was just too. You're too distracted by the facial. By the facial, <laughs> cape of good hope. What do you think about the like hoodie plus jacket? Like, is this the thing to like make your upper body look even bigger? I think so, for sure. It yeah. It was also. I think the hoodie plus jacket was very much a move of the early two thousands, mm. right? Like like two thousand eight. I, I, I feel like a lot of guys wore like the blazer with mm. with a with a hoodie. I don't know, but this is 2014, so we're past that. We're in the teens. Overall, not great. There was a lot of, well, maybe just Ty Sheridan wearing Boston stuff. That's the only one I really noticed. But it felt very heavy-handed with the Boston Boston clothing. Uh, but I don't remember Travolta wearing any Boston sports clothing. I think he had he the one high. outfit, honestly. The whole time. Yeah, yeah, I think when he went to go buy the, the French painting, he had a suit. Yeah. And so he obviously had that in his in his wardrobe. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense because he has to sort of in certain crimes you need to look sharp. So You do. 
Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I was a fan <laughs> of his of all of his of clothes. All of his clothes. He looked like a middle-aged man who lived in Palm Desert the okay. whole movie. Um, and the movie had like that kind of vibe across the board. Like it had a very Sinatra-y, like classic kind of look. And I feel like they did a really good job with his costuming. He did dress. There were times where he just like would just wear like slacks and a shirt. And then other times I feel like he would dress older or something. Hmm. Like he, when he was trying to trick that guy, uh, the guy that they were swindling out of the, a ton of money, you know, he would wear spectacles. So that would make him look a little older. But he wore sweats a lot. He whenever he'd clean, he'd wear sweats mm. like a sweat he did track need to suit. Clean a lot. Yeah, he cleaned a lot. We didn't really talk about that, but he yeah, when he would get kind of like triggered or whatever, he would just like clean his whole house, and uh, and then sweat profusely. There would always be like a sweat stain after he'd been cleaning for a long time. Yeah, so I I mean I he was very middle aged. I think that they they pegged yeah. that. Oh, I'm going to just interject with some updated news. I've been doing some beard research over here. Mm. Um, I think that we, what we have, what the term that we have for, for Travolta's specific sin on his chin is petite goatee. So I, I'm, yeah. It's a petite goatee. Okay. And I think that the petite goatee could just be on the chin or it could also be up, you know, like up to the lip. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is often more convenient, or like you don't have to shave that part yeah. if you have it up to the lip, Travolta. So you know, th- think about that next time. Honestly, think about just shaving it all off. Yeah, you cause... have a good jawline. Why? Why ruin it? I think that he really tries to recreate himself in every movie. Like mm. he tries to create a unique character to every like whether and and I think he does it in. I think he approaches it from every angle. Like he, he always has like different characteristics or tics or um, gestures that he uses, even like posturing. Um, and his hair is different in every single movie. And I just wonder if he was like, you know what? I want, I want a petite goatee for this film. I think I've <laughs> I never done, done that, that before. <laughs> I got to try it. I got to try the petite goatee. Yeah, and maybe you know, representing all those men who are into that mm-hmm. that don't ever get. Their petite goatee shown on screen. <laughs> Do we even bother to ask the question, are, are they dateable? Yes. Which we one have would you to date? Do this. I just... No, they're, they're both bad, but I would definitely say Cage. I would date Cage. Because, yeah, no, Travolta in this, in, in, in The Forger was pretty problematic, and I mean, and I think that Cage, at the end, when he had his sort of, like, his healthy life, he seemed, he you know... Great. Yeah, he yeah. was working. He, he he was so friendly with that young punk that needed new carpet. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly what he needed. Yeah, so I think. Sorry, John, but you're you know with this patico tea with your. He was a good painter. Was he? Yeah, I mean he must have been, but but that also bothered me. Like if you're gonna forge things, why don't you just paint your own way? You know, just paint your own art. Because he was very talented. He could have done anything. Well, which which actor in movie was better? Which one wins the face off? I I think we know. <laughs> I think we know. Let's see it on three. <laughs> one, two, three. Matchstick men. men. Yeah. yeah, it was better. It was neater. It, it was, was a movie. It was an actual. It movie. was a story. I kind of thought. 
thought you were going to change your mind because you're fighting pretty hard for yeah, the Forger. Yeah, and you hate the Forger. I hate oh, it. There's so much contempt in your voice. There was a lot. No, I... Yes, I mean, we're not we're not watching these movies because they are, they're marketed to us and they have achieved high acclaim. You know, and interestingly for both movies, they both men, even though they're criminals, they're like inarguably criminals... They both have like a moral code, right? Mm-hmm. That they establish this is what we do, this is what we don't do mm-hmm. in the criminal world. And I don't know, I think that's fascinating too. So, uh, Jess, any peaches in your life right now? <sighs> peach. I would, I would say your shirt is a peach. My shirt is a peach. And actually, it, but yeah. I have a shirt that's just white and it says teenaged exclamation mark on it. It's really good. That's not my peach, though. <laughs> okay. it's Maybe it'll be mine. Yeah. I'd say my peach right now is um, British terrorism TV shows. <laughs> Which one I just finished Collateral and Bodyguard. And do they have problematic stereotype issues? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Do they have strong female leads? Definitely. And hmm. that's something I appreciate about British TV shows a lot is they have... They, a lot of times they'll have females in law enforcement roles, hmm. which I think that U.S. does sometimes, but yeah. a lot of times they're like, and it's a sexy detective, and, you know, she is going out for cocktails. On, I don't know. It, for some reason, like, the Brits do it better. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. That's my... Nobody does it better except the Brits. <laughs> That's Carly Simon's... <laughs> updated version of that song. Uh, anyway, so yeah, check them out. Mm-hmm. Judge them for yourself. Cool. I'll have to check you? those out. What are your peaches? Dude, so I would say one of my peaches was just going to home state with you <gasps> yesterday. Oh. Uh, for those of you who listen and do not know anything about Los Angeles or home state, it is a breakfast place that serves breakfast tacos and many other things. And it I, you know what, I'm pretty basic. I really like me a good breakfast taco. And, uh, I didn't even have a breakfast taco, though. You didn't have the corn taco? No. Oh. I had a, I had a lunch taco this time, I, I just realized. Lunch taco. But I still just really like being there. Like, to me, that's like a place I like to go when I'm in I Los feel Angeles. like the vibe of Homestate is very much the Aaron Hennessy mm-hmm. vibe. It's yeah. bright colors. It's oh, yeah. fun illustrations. Mm-hmm. It's Lots of inventiveness. It's there's uh, they have guest um, guest tacos designed by um, famous musician musicians, mm-hmm. and so they have like sort of record covers yeah. of those tacos, kind of thing, <laughs> which is so funny. Yeah, I and I feel that. like that is some. Yeah, I yeah. I totally see that being your. It's a happy um, place for sure. A happy place for yeah. Um, that's great. Yeah, so that's a peach, and yeah, I mean. The peach of you being in L.A. is (laughs) Is also a peach. Yeah, Yeah, I always like being in L.A. Okay, well, that is our episode. That's episode five. In our next episode, we'll be facing off Travolta's... Get ready, guys. This is... I'm so excited. (laughs) Ah! Uh, Travolta's Pulp Fiction with Cage's Adaptation, which are both... This is going to be a hard one. It's going to be hard. This is... Yeah, yeah, it'll be hard. No, Okay. (laughs) I, don't know. I actually haven't seen adaptations, so that'll be good for me oh. to watch <laughs> to like figure out, you know. And but I've heard really great things. Yeah. So well, I yeah. just think that it's yeah. I mean, we had a little bit of a a valley of 
We did have a valley. There were a few episodes. And I think that Pulp Fiction and Adaptation, which I think we're categorizing as like sort of cult cult classics classics Mm -hmm. and and film buff favorites. It's it's gonna be the quality is gonna be taken up a notch for these men. Yes. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Face Off Podcast. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at faceoffpod or email us suggestions at faceoffpod@gmail.com. We hate to see you go, but we love to watch you.